Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq al and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, if you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Keep up with us. Stay tuned. Don't jump in and leave right back out. All right. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. So if you missed the broadcast on the radio, you can always go back wherever you get yours at. So if that's Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Look for us once again at Radio Islam USA. Real simple. All right, folks. We, um, we've got a good, a good conversation especially for you Chicago folks, for our Chicago listeners. Um, as you all know, we've got, what, like 15 people in the upcoming mayoral race, right? So I think what our conversation tonight is going to be definitely, definitely geared towards uh, towards that and uh, taking that into consideration. So joining us in studio, we have Nikita Brar. She is the founding executive director of Chicago United for Equity. Uh, she began her career in direct service, spending five years as an investigator with the D.C. Public Defender's Office, later as a teacher and dean. Man, shout out, shout out. Uh, in Title I schools, she currently serves on the local school council at National Teachers Academy, a level one school, school, school serving a majority black, majority low income student population. She, co- in, she co-founded Q, which is, uh, I think I just said it, <laughs> Chicago United for Equity, uh, along with LSE President Elizabeth Greer. And they worked together to organize parents, students, and a larger citywide coalition to fight this school closing. Welcome to Radio Islam, Nikita. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you've got a pretty big, um, a pretty big mission. Uh, and I had a, had an opportunity to look at the, the website and uh, one thing that just jumped right out, which was to, uh, to bring about some racial uh, equity uh, in a city that is known for its separation, known for its segregation, which masks as a city of neighborhoods, right? code uh, for segrega- uh, segregation, which often brings with it inequality, inequity. So could you tell us a bit about um, about um, Chicago United for Equity and how it how it br- how it's going to bring about racial equity? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I think uh, it's first of all, it's not often that people actually start with like this is how they got started was over at the school, right? And I like that because it really, we do this work. If you do this kind of work, you do this work because of yourself. You do it for your family. You do it for community, right? Right. And for me, um, this work started, uh, doing racial equity work started many years ago Mm -hmm. in my career. But in Chicago, really started with a, a clear sense of this is about race and this is about what we all deserve. Um, that started really when I was working on the local school council at National Teachers Academy. We learned that uh, CPS had the intention of closing the high-performing school in order to turn it into what they were calling a diverse uh, neighborhood high school, right? And so you clearly have to understand the context was they were trying to avoid people going to a majority black, majority low-income high school, Phillips High School, mm-hmm. and instead 
could say, look, we're, we're about diversity. We're about good things. We're just going to separate this community and send them to their own high school, which is really modern-day segregation. That's right. what it is. So uh, when we started doing this work, we realized pretty quickly, look, we cannot fight these kinds of huge issues by just tackling one school closing at a time. We can't even fight it by f- talking just about our school system. This is really embedded in, in where our money flows in our neighborhoods, just like you mentioned, right? It goes to um, how people are elected into office, what powers they have, and all of these other systems of dysfunction that are uniquely Chicago. Right. <laughs> that's, right. like the, that's what we call the Chicago way. So what we're really here to do as an organization is to tackle institutional and structural racism. Um, so we do work with people that are really trying to tackle implicit bias and things that are going on at the personal level, individual level. But we are talking about the ways in which our government is set up and institutions other than government to reiterate um, and reinstitutionalize a separation and a, basically a power structure that's set by race. Mm. You know, that uh, that inequity, the inequality, uh, we see it most often in terms of uh, education. Yeah. And uh, that being said, and I go back to coming up for this mayoral uh, race, and we've got a really crowded field. And one of the questions that I've asked each of the folks, I think we've talked to three of the people that have, that have put their hat in the ring so far. And one of the questions we ask is, uh, where do you stand on an elected school board? Mm-hmm. And if you could uh, give us your uh, your take on how that particular body impacts that uh, disparity. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing to note is sort of I come from a policy background, so I look at like, well, what are other places doing? And is it better? Is it worse? How could we learn? Right. So one thing to note is that Chicago is the only school district in the state of Illinois that does not have an elected school board. Um, It's also the most, um, you know, it's known for and notorious for uh, sort of being a much more racially diverse district than the majority of districts around our state. So when you look at that, that in and of itself is a inequity. The belief that, you know what, we believe all these other school districts can govern themselves, but you, Chicago, we don't trust you to handle it, right? right? Like, why don't you trust us to handle that? So that's on one level, right? But the next level is then we look at, so where do we see elected school boards and are things functioning better? And the thing is, it's a mixed bag. If you elect a school board, but you don't have in place other structural pieces with it, like fin- campaign finance reform, yeah. having like a really strong system, right, to vet uh, when special interests take over, we will be able to say we're one step closer to a real democracy, but we'll still face the same challenges that everyone else is facing. Now, I still believe that's better than um, having a school system where we're saying, look, we don't trust you at all to govern yourselves, right? Uh, That's just about the most insulting thing as (laughs) you can imagine in democracy. Yeah. Now, um, I I think there's a tendency to try to gear gear away from mentioning race. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I don't really understand it. Uh, I think some folks think that if you don't mention it, it it doesn't exist. It's not a factor. But we know uh, after education, we can look at policing mm-hmm. uh, and how this is a uh, a clear marker of how um, of how resources can be uh, expended and contribute to the marginalization or oppression of a community. So if you if you're putting all of your 85 percent of your resources in low income uh, black and brown communities. Uh, then that's where you're going to make your arrest at. Um, in this coalition that you all are building, is that something that is uh, is is that high up on the the list of, of things that you're talking about and and, and addressing? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so one thing that we're really doing in this upcoming municipal election is recognizing, like, first of all, we have to completely reimagine how Chicago works. Yeah. Um, and so part of the campaign is it's called the uh, Reimagine Chicago campaign. Okay. And if you go on Twitter or social media, it, like, it's we're really trying to take pictures of and invite people to share their stories of what part of Chicago they would like to reimagine. And it's kind of almost tongue in cheek, a play on this idea of reimagine Chicago the way that uh, our previous administration did, right? Mm -hmm. They took their reimagination, but um, we believe that the power of imagination should really be in the power, in the hands of the people who are most impacted by the changes that come. And so our community folks getting a chance to say, no, I'm going to reimagine safety. I'm going to reimagine that if 40% of our budget as a city is on policing, if one day of policing is equivalent to a million and a half dollars, right? Um, That Yet we're able to take actions like build community health clinics, um, like on the west side, we've got the North Lawndale um, uh, Restorative Justice Community Court, right? That started as a pilot program with $200,000 for two years. Mm. That's, I mean, just to think, right, that we could actually, we could have safety on our terms in more humane ways that resulted not just people who are directly impacted, including the, you know, folks who are Uh, offending and folks that are being victimized in that, but also people that are in the community being able to say, you know what, I trust this safety system. I trust that our community is taking care of this in a humane way. That is what we really need to get to in order to build a government and a community that believes that Chicago is functioning the way it should. Hmm. Now, I mentioned that um, when I first looked at the um, I looked at this this idea of reimagining Chicago and I thought to myself, you know, town hall meets think tank right <laughs> and uh and i think that's wonderful and but when it especially when we think about how many people have been uh jaded by the current uh by the current system and then they feel that they, their voice really doesn't carry any weight and that there's not an outcome if they do put way that you know put their two cents in so could you talk a bit about how uh, what's this process of of bringing in the community and and getting their input and then uh, transferring that into actual um, into actual policy change, uh, you know, really putting some rubber on the ground. Yeah, so these are the questions that keep me up at night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you're asking them. Um, so I'll say, you know, back in March, uh, organizers sat me down and said, Nikita, you know, I'm doing this work on the northwest side around housing and trying to bring in more affordable housing and change people's hearts and minds, right? But it would be really helpful if we had some real um, – facts and some ability to like hold people accountable to those facts and so i was like yeah you know let me let me think about that let me think on like what could we do and so we started having conversations with journalists and academics and researchers and more community groups and grassroots organizers like just everybody that we could who cares about public accountability and building a stronger chicago and is doing that in like kind of a full-time way and we what we ended up with was to say, look, we need to have a system that doesn't just give people a voter guide, right? Yeah. And say these are all your candidates. This is what they're. This is where they stand on things. But most of the time, when those voter guides are created, um, the problem is that the people who wrote the voter guide decide what issue you should care about and not. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, and that becomes it's actually reiterating power. 
mm-hmm. and the power structure that exists. And so we said, well, how do we do this in a way that changes the frame on who actually has the power to set the conversation? So what we ended up with was something called the Vote Equity Project. And it's part of the Reimagine Chicago campaign, which is much bigger than just this. But this part is specifically on how do we bring the voices of everyday people in defining the exact policies, structural changes that uh, we should be holding these new elected officials accountable to once they get into office. So what it starts with is right now you go to our website, uh, you can plug in hey, this is my big idea. This is how I think we need to reshape our government for mm-hmm. racial equity. You know, um, I need elected school board or I, I want to see a campaign finance reform in this way, right? Whatever those ideas are, you plug them in. Uh, we run those ideas into a into basically a ballot and that ballot then is uh, disseminated to everyday individuals who want to have parties with their, you know, 10 people on my block or uh, my church, my mosque, uh, just any other community group that you're plugged into, any part of your community, right? You get trained, you get 50 bucks to support it, and you go out and you actually collect these ballots. You have to promise me you have at least 10 people at your party, right? (laughs) You have to be able to turn some people out. Um, And you actually sit down and you have a conversation. You say not just like, okay, these are the ideas, but hey, what's your story, how did you feel the impact of this problem in your in your life, right? And then once we sit down, we have those conversations, then we vote, um, and then we return those ballots. And ultimately what we do with that is those ballots that come in, we tally up what the most popular ideas are, and from there we create the voter guide. And not only is it a voter guide before the election, right, telling everybody, okay, look, these are the top ten things that you thought were really problematic in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And by the way, here's where all the candidates stand on those things. What we also will do is after the election, that's how we as an organization will be holding whoever gets elected accountable. So we will continue to push every quarter, every year, right, hey, mayor, hey, council, this is what the people of Chicago told you they wanted. Where are you at? That's awesome. That is definitely reimagining the formation of political agendas. Uh, Because my frustration is always whenever I hear people talk about, I hear uh, uh, candidates get up and they say these are the agendas or they go through their talking points. And I'm wondering, like, I'm sorry, why are you talking about these these two or three things? And you've left off nine or ten things that are are, are germane to my personal uh, experience in Chicago. So this really does put it put the power back in the hands of the people. And I imagine um, that the more participation, the stronger, the stronger it is. Uh, how long did it? I mean, was this was, did, did this uh, seem to be just a simple? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or, no. or, or, uh, <laughs> because it, it sounds it sounds simple. Mm, right. It yeah. sounds easy. Just go ahead and just have everybody get together and do this. But no, that's. Yeah, that, that's yeah. I'm sitting here. My wheels are spinning. Um, how long did it take to come up with that? Since March. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and the reason why is because um, we've got you know we've got a, a hundred community organizations that are supporting this work also. So. That takes a long time, and so our uh, one of our key partners on the Coordinating Council is Grassroots Collaborative, and they've really done the work of putting together and bringing these, you know, leaders of these community groups together. Um, and so, uh, you know, mad shout out to them. They have been doing the really hard work of pulling together that coalition and basically being able to say these are the campaigns people have been running, right? Like right. here's a campaign for a community benefits agreement off the Obama Presidential Library, right? That speaks to a structural reform. Right. Like what would it look like? 
like for us to actually expect that when developers come in and say, hey, we want to build up part of the city, that we actually say, great, tell us what you're going to do for our people. Right. Um, and you see that happening as a national conversation. So I, th- I think for your listeners that are out there, they're like, Chicago politics is interesting, but how does this relate to me? You know, this is a conversation that every single community in Chicago, in the state of Illinois, and in the country should be having. How do we, as the people, as out, who far outnumber special interests, how do we actually bring our power together to be able to hold accountable those who have much more money? All right. Yeah, and, and to thank um, uh, Radio Sound Family for those who are in the area. If you're in the, um, the Woodlawn area, uh, you know uh, the, the presidential library is going up right across from from my high school alma mater. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, High Park. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that comes about in these community partnership uh, agreements is, you know, if it's construction going on, then you've got to hire from within the community, uh, and this is important for those. I mean, I know. I'm uh, I'm a journeyman iron worker by trade, so mm. I know there have been plenty of projects I've been on where there have been people who are driving two hours to come to work uh, in in the community in the city, where you have folks who are living five minutes away mm. and they're sitting at home, right? So this idea of community partnerships and engaging uh, economic develop development, this is that's 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 critical. That's critical. So do you see this as this type of uh, paradigm changing the way uh, communities engage government moving forward and something that other municipalities, other communities could look at and say that we want to model, we want to follow this model because Chicago is a trendsetter. <laughs> Chicago is a trendsetter, but uh, we're really just focused right now on doing this one well, okay. right? Um, just doing a really good job on this. And so, you know, what I'm working my my time on is basically just getting everyday people, the, the sort of unorganized organizers, you know who I'm talking about, yeah. you know, they're, uh, I know them. Uh, in my in my neighborhood, my family, and my community, right? We know those people who you say, okay, you know, someone's giving away pies, like they're going to organize to get those yeah. pies. Or if you say, uh, hey, like some, you know, somebody wants to put up a speed bump in this area, they'll co- they'll get everybody out to that meeting. So those are the people we're looking for to really host these conversations and to set the political agenda because. unless we get involved, what's going to end up happening is the same thing that always happens. The people who are closest to the candidates define for them what should be the future of our city. Mm. And one of those candidates is going to win, right? And so we give up our power. And so we want to see people actually reclaim our power and to say, no, this is what we want for our city and our future. And um, I'm only going to vote for that person who's really going to stand up for what I want. Right. So are you all in contact or do you intend to be in contact with each of the candidates uh, as as we move forward? Yes, absolutely. Um, So we've um, some of the candidates have really made an effort to reach out and to say, you know, we are really passionate about making racial equity core to our platform. Well, how do we do that? Um, And we have just said, you know, it's not for me to tell you. It's not for me to to define for you what the thing is. Right. It's for the community to define for you. And what we can do is help you see what these outcomes are when people um, do decide and determine on the platform. These are our key issues. You might say, well, I'm wondering how we do this or that or the other thing. And you might have some technical questions. Then we'll step in. We'll, we'll provide some resources. We'll plug you into people that we know who are really smart, can you know, help talk through some problems. But, um, but what we aren't going to do is say, you know, yes, we're an organization known for racial equity. Let me write your platform for racial equity. Right, right, right. Um, how do people connect? How do people get involved? 
Um, they just go to our website, so chicagounitedforequity.org, um, and they can plug in right there. Uh, the page really is live right now, so they can throw in their ideas. Um, and we're really saying we want these ideas to be just everyday people can access, right? So write a tweet. You're yeah. not. We're not asking you for a policy paper. Like it's literally 140 characters. So don't make it long. <laughs> I don't want your dissertation. Right, right. Um, I want you to just think about. You know, if you had one magic wish, one magic wand moment, how would you change our city to make it work for all of us? So the outcome or the the goal is 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 what we're kind of kind of re- reverse engineering. Is is that the is yeah. that kind of the idea? Yeah. Okay. So anybody can come up and say, you know, I would like it if we had. Um, if we really have more beat cops, mm-hmm. right, uh, and and if those police officers um, had to live in the neighborhood or something like that, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, then it becomes a matter of involving the police department in terms of how they, you know, how they uh, assign people and all, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. So there's not really there's no constraints on what. And what you're asking for people to be able no, to No, the, uh, the get. only constraint is that it has to be a structural problem. So what you can't do is say pave the, the sidewalk in front of my house, right? Like yeah. <laughs> it has to be structural. It has to be something. And when I say structural, this is how I think about it. It has to be citywide. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be something that lives on past any one mayor. Right. Okay. So uh, you can't just say like buy back, you know, our um, – uh, all of our parking meters, right? Like that's not that's a one issue thing. I'm talking mm-hmm. about a structure. I'm talking about how government works, where power flows, where money goes. Um, so it's got to be that. Uh, and then the other thing is, it's got to be something your community agrees with. So you could have a brilliant idea, right? But if you're not getting the word out there, if you're not getting, if you're not mobilizing people, and it might be, let's be really really clear it might be that someone sits in their living room they type something up they never go out and talk to anybody about it but their idea is just such a good one that when people read it they're like wow i'm really moved by that i think that's right and so it's the idea is that um because people always they immediately go to whoa 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 does that mean anybody could come up with any idea to change the entire city (laughs) no it's not one person Right. right, it's vetted through all of us, right. and so we take on the collective responsibility of kind of figuring out like, does this work? Does this not? And I actually have a lot of faith in us. I have a lot of faith in the people when they sit together. We are an argumentative bunch. Yeah. I love Chicago because everyone is an armchair politician, right, or a political analyst. So we know that if we get this out to enough people, we will actually vet the ideas pretty well. Yeah. And in fact, in many times way better than the ways I've seen ideas vetted when I was inside political administrations. Really? <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, you know, I, I think it, it comes to uh, the, the shared experience. All right? There are going to be certain things that, you, you know, you're going to hear over and over and over again. Uh, and although the parking meters might not be something that, uh, you know, that would make the cut, but there will be things, uh, the red light, you know, red light cameras, mm-hmm. right? I know that has been a thorn in many, many sides. Uh, particularly since the those cameras have been focused more in, um, you know, communities of color. Yeah. So uh, you don't see them, you know, if you're up north. Yep. You know? So that's that's definitely one of those things. Um, what is the expectation? Um, do you, do you anticipate that there's going? I know you said that uh, some candidates have been receptive, uh, but is there an expectation of uh, of resistance um, as well? You know, I think. The the thing is, I think we're in a very different political era right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that everyone knows they're going to have to work for every single vote, 
Um, and that is that's a change. That's a real change. If you can't rely on your name or um, some sort of partnership that you've worked out to get you the votes you need, you actually have to respond to people. And what we're I think what makes our our sort of voter guide a little different than a, a more typical voter guide is you can't just negotiate with me, Nikita, yeah. and get me to like switch my position and endorse you, right? You actually have to go through this. You have to get people on your side, which is actually what an election is supposed to be about. So in many ways, we think of it as, look, you can resist this idea, but it's not, it's more powerful than any one person. It's more powerful than any one community. It's about all of us. So if you resist it too hard, what does that mean for you and your election outcomes? Yeah, we don't, we don't even want you on the team. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I think it's, you know, it's kind of like taking that, um, we tell people all the time, like, when you look at talking about race, trying to shift people's public opinion, we've got our people that are already on our side. That's our base, right? right. We've got people that are actively, angrily fighting against uh, the changes that we'd like to see. Um, and then we've got a lot of people in the middle. And if you have limited time, limited resources, you don't focus on changing the minds of people who are actively against you. Right. You work on rallying the people in the middle. And so th- that's really what we see as the outcome of this as well is our base goes out and gets people who maybe don't see themselves as a voter who thinks predominantly about race issues in Chicago, right? They mm-hmm. see themselves as just, I'm a voter that cares about making the city better. Okay, now let's talk to you about why it's not working for people who are black, brown, Asian. Like, it is not working. The city is predominantly not working for black folks. Yeah. Um, and it's seriously um, reiterating the power structure that we know is it's coming down. It's coming down all over the country. One thing that I appreciate uh, as I think about this uh, particular model is that it brings people into, into conversation with one another. Yeah. Uh, this idea of, of polling, of having these, um, uh, what, what do you term? We're calling call them vote equity parties. Vote equity parties, yeah. right? you got to have at least at least 10 people, yeah. right? So you have these 10 people come together, and, and it moves beyond the uh, the conversations that we have with one another, you know, you know, at the kitchen table or in the car, uh, and it really becomes more of a community conversation. So I think that's 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 really key. Yeah, really I do key. too. And I think, you know, what we're um, doing in the training is we're actually going to model what does it look like to have one of these, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a radical, radical thing to actually just sit and listen to one another. Mm-hmm. It's a radical thing because we are in a uh, we're in a time where we're always on the go. We've got 10 other things we're thinking about, right? We don't share our own stories. We don't actually tell you about ourselves when we sit down. Um, and those stories are actually really powerful. And when we look at, you know, whether it's research or just our own experiences, we know that what changes people's hearts and minds isn't numbers. No. It's stories. So we think that that's really key to, um, key to the work of, of building more racially equitable community. Mm. So folks can go online. You can go to the website. Give them the website again. ChicagoUnitedForEquity.org. And uh, trainings are going to be coming up Yeah, soon, they'll or? be coming up at um, the beginning of December. Uh, I think November 29th is the first one. Um, so, yeah, go sign up. Get trained. Get the $50. Come bring your community together. Get your ballots in. Um, and let's get ready to vote. Okay. We thank you so much for coming in and, uh, and sharing this information with us. Thank you. All right. All right, Radio Slam family, we're going to take a break, but we will be back shortly. This is Radio Slam on WCEV 1450 AM. Nine one one, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. 
Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are just tuned in, you're just joining us, make sure that you are keeping up with us on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So like, follow us. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, review us, let us know what you think. We're on SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, TuneIn, Apple Podcast. You'll find us. What's it? What's the handle? It's at Radio Slam USA. Really simple. Um, what else do I want to tell you real quick? Oh, make sure that you also stop by RadioSlam.com. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I don't want you to miss out on anything uh, Particularly, if you go to RadioSlam.com, you can check out guest bios and pictures and, and just keep up with the happenings here at Radio Islam. All right, folks. Um, we had a conversation about a month ago. Uh, first, before I go any further, let me go ahead and give a nod to my, my brother, uh, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Beg. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. So you and I, we had a conversation about a month ago where we talked about affirmative action. So... We are now having more conversation around this, and I'm going to pass the mic to you to let us know where we're at right now because it's back in the news. Right. Um, well, it's never got out of the news. Yeah, yeah, pretty that's much true. because that's it's true. still ongoing. I don't think there's there has not been a uh, any conclusive results so far. It's going to be an ongoing thing for the next several months, maybe even a few years, until right. it gets all the way up to the Supreme Court, and then we'll see what happens from there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was about a month ago, episode number 624, for those of our family members who want to go and take a listen to it, just to see what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. I brought up a lot of issues, such as the uh, Asian community's proximity to whiteness, mm-hmm. and so on, which we still haven't elaborated on, really, which kind of like deserves its own thing. Yeah. The Atlantic on actually before we were speaking, I haven't read it yet, but it has an article August thirty first on the whitening of Asian Americans, which promises to be an interesting read. That was one of the things we talked about. We also talked about the kind of um, elitist um, institutions, mm-hmm. you know, this furthering of elitism. That's kind of what we'll get into today. Is whether that is true or whether that is really being dealt with and um, will it become a thing of the past I also mentioned at the end of that segment last month that I personally as an Asian American although I don't really give that much importance to my Asian-ness I'm still on the fence 
for this particular issue, I'm for affirmative action in general for various reasons that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And for this specific uh, case, and it wasn't one just one case of like one or two people. It's a it's a a trend that was observed in Harvard, mm-hmm. and Harvard being the obviously most prestigious school in the country, arguably in the world, uh, Harvard and Oxford, Oxford yeah. yeah. Um, it predates the United States of America by like a hundred years or something like that. Right. Um, that's also another discussion in and of itself. Why is Harvard such a big deal in this day and age? You know. Yeah. Um, at the end of our discussion last time, I kind of said I'm on the fence when it comes to this trend of uh, discrimination against Asian Americans. Is it a good thing? Is it necessary or not? Um, what I read very recently today actually mm-hmm. there's there's two a couple of pieces that I'm going to talk about one that I talk, that I'm going to talk about right now I just read today it was in the Atlantic mm-hmm. and it is from hold on let me see it's from recently it's from uh yeah it is from today actually it was published today and I just found it today about okay. like a few hours ago so in it one of the things that they mentioned when I said I was on the fence I've learned something new which now I'm very uh i'm against what's going on in this case at harvard uh, because of the following reason so let me just read this pieces of this paragraph all of the fact they say all of the factors have all of these factors have led to the current lawsuit against the harvard admissions office which alleges discrimination against asian americans who have by far the highest test scores of any cohort in the applicant pool and yet are admitted at a lower rate than any group so that sounds like that sounds pretty unfair, right? If you have sure. the highest test scores, you should, you know, have a higher admission. But it goes on. Uh, but has the real aim this lawsuit has the real aim of ending affirmative action. The intellectual author of the lawsuit is a man named Edward Bloom, the president of an anti-affirmative action organization called Students for Fair Admissions. The group was previously spearheaded a suit against the University of Texas on behalf of a white woman who was denied admission. The Supreme Court found in that university's favor, but Bloom is undaunted. By making Asians rather than a white student the plaintiffs in the new suit, he has created a more palatable equation for our confused times. (laughs) So there was obviously something going on behind the scenes um, sure. when it came to what actually motivated this lawsuit to come forth. Uh, this person, I don't know too much about him, obviously. I just learned about him today. Edward Bloom from the uh, organization called Students for Fair Admissions. Mm. Kind of a pretty skilled uh, plan to... You know, because he he was fighting for this case for, on behalf of this white student in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, the you know didn't have good results in that case. So now he wants to, I guess maybe Trojan horse is the right word. Yeah, using uh, that's using certainly, uh, yeah using Asian students' concerns, right. which now their concerns are legitimate. Right, I sympathize with them with their concerns. Like if I'm Asian, I am Asian. I wouldn't want. To, I don't know if I'm the right kind of Asian or whatever that's another issue but I wouldn't want when I fill out Asian on the thing on the form I don't I won't want to be 
decreasing my chances, right? Just by putting that on there. Right. You know? Right. Um, so I sympathize with that. But nevertheless, this whole situation that we're seeing now with Harvard is uh, being Trojan horsed for, for at risk of, you know, using that term which has been played with many times. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as part of a broader... Uh, agenda against affirmative action itself and we talked about which I talked about last time was that I'm not against affirmative action I'm for affirmative action in general because we need it to balance out all of these inequalities and injustices that are inherent in the the policing system, the housing system the educational system uh, elementary, high school level, as a public school system, in order to balance out these injustices, that affirmative action as an institution is something that is still necessary. You know what I see here. Uh, there are a couple of things. First off, is the the solidarity that should exist between minority communities. Yeah. Uh, and I see this as a divisive maneuver to further separate communities that should and in in some instances you know there is cooperation but for most instances uh, instances uh, that cooperation is not really there and that goes back to i think a deeper conversation we need to have with regard to the property uh whitenesses of property uh the whitening of uh the the asian community or identity or aspirations mm-hmm. or whatever i think uh, there's a a deeper conversation we need to have on that um, and I agree that this definitely is a it's a Trojan horse move to uh, to say that you're advocating for fair admissions uh, and you're pointing towards uh, an, an Asian uh, individual that was denied admission. But the real the real travesty I think that we see here and Harvard is not uh, by their own admission they are open about their um, the attention that they pay to race with regard to admissions, right? And once again, that's a, another conversation. But with re- the, the real travesty here is that we're not paying attention to admissions trends uh, as they reflect the browning of America. So as America becomes more diver- uh, diverse, uh, becomes more brown, then those admissions... It shouldn't be a, a fight over the 10 percent of minority admissions that are on the table. Now, that's just the number I just threw out. I don't know what the mm-hmm. real number is. But that shouldn't be the fight. The, the real fight should be if, the, uh, if the, the, the population is becoming more brown, then why is it that our admissions, if, if we have as many folks of color who are applying for admission, why do we have a smaller pool a smaller door to get through why is it that the white population uh white students are being admitted at higher rates right i think that's that that's what the conversation needs to be uh instead it's turned into a uh conversation about let's fight for fight for the scraps mm-hmm. well i don't know if whites are being admitted at a higher rate than others because at Harvard, last year was the first year mm-hmm. in which minority admission, if you group all minorities together, yeah. that those outnumbered the white admissions. I think that was the first time in their history or something like that. Mm. Um, so it's 
it, it is kind of an issue of the the Asian American students. Um, and another, I think the article, the other article I was talking about, the one where it talks about Asians and whiteness. Yeah. I think it mentioned that um, if Asian students were to be admitted on the merits alone, their academic merits alone, right. they would have made up 48% of the student body at Harvard. And if they were admitted just on these other, like, uh, personality requirements and these abstract kind of requirements culturally subjective yeah yeah that they would make up like much the 18 percent or something like that mm. so it's, it's a big difference so the asian students i guess got together and were like if you know if, if our test scores and our academic performance you know does it makes us deserving of this rate of admission why is it like that much less you know um that's kind of like how it started so let me throw this in real quick yeah. but that also goes back to um, there was another uh, another idea thrown out, um, which is that university colleges that they also should have some say so with regard to the composition of their student body. So if they're right. looking, if they're being intentional about having a a student body that reflects, and and my prior comment was not necessarily just um, directed toward Harvard. Um, as far as, you know, um, maybe more white admit, uh, admissions, uh, because I said that they are very clear about being uh, uh, being cognizant of the makeup, the racial makeup of their student body. So if they're um, so, yeah, so colleges and universities, right, isn't it their right to and I'm only on the side of that when when they are being conscious of having a diverse student body, uh, the student body. Right. right, it's their right to be able to to have some say so on that. Yeah, um, that was, that's one of the things we mentioned last time. I read from an article that was by, written an op ed written by an Asian American graduate of Harvard, mm-hmm. and he was arguing in favor of um, having kind of like having quotas on Asians to have to have not too people not too many people from one demographic represented on campus to have it all balanced out because that's he was arguing in favor of this because he said that's kind of um part of what going to college at at an institution like that is about to have everyone represented equally and and Mm -hmm. to interact with them and learn outside the classroom and so on so yeah yeah i think people are aware of that to some extent they might not agree on it but we're aware of it now and also would add that this issue is really um, it becomes relevant in these very highly selective universities, right? Yeah. Because in, like, lesser-known schools and lesser-known state schools or private schools, um, their, the admissions process is much more open, and they're not... Uh, because not everyone is trying to go there. You know, when you go to places like Harvard... Yeah, all, um, all, the, I, all the Ivy yeah. League schools, Georgetown, Chicago, mm-hmm. Northwestern, Princeton. Stanford. Yeah, William & Mary. Uh, a few state schools, too, Michigan, Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's trying to go there, you know, for people from our country and even in other countries. Everyone wants to go there. So so that's, so that's places like that is where this um, really comes to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would add that. But now, so I guess... We're still a little bit inconclusive on what's going to happen, um, but I do want to. Uh, I did want to point out that there's something else going on behind the scenes here, which is much more biased against affirmative action 
in general as an institution and is using the issue of uh, trying to you know trying to sympathize with Asian American students in order to push through this agenda which is much more um, destructive I think yeah and then also to point out that the the real loser in this is the African American uh, community um, and we talk about affirmative action and what it is designed to address and try to bring some type of parity about uh, even though what's the, what's the saying the wheels of justice uh, they, they grind but they grind slowly right mm-hmm. they move very slowly um, when we think about what affirmative action and what any type of policy that's enacted to try to try to level a playing field uh, it's not something that can be done overnight. And um, I want to bring this up. So, uh, family, if you all don't know this, if you've looked up uh, stats like wealth, uh, wealth distribution or wealth inequality, the average uh, African-American family, it says, uh, I was reading a study, I think the number was like 200 years. It would take about 200 years for the average uh, African-American family to catch up to the level of uh, wealth accumulation of your average white family, right? That's a that's a ridiculous amount of time. And even if I'm off by a hundred years, that's still a ridiculous amount of time. Uh, and that is due to the position that uh, African Americans, the majority of African Americans, uh, occupied or, or were relegated to in the American uh, United States society. So, to attack. African-American students who are the beneficiaries of, you know, of a policy that allows them entry into an institution, which is unlike your regular state, your community uh, colleges that comes with, you know, the pedigree of going to one of these uh, institutions. It it carries a lifetime of access, a lifetime uh, that that's going to your income will be impacted, the social circles that you that you run in. Okay, I hear that. Um. <laughs> but, but, but that, but, but that still doesn't bring us to any resolution, right? We'll be watching this for for a little while. Yeah, it's going to take a while to any to to reach any kind of solid conclusion. Yeah, and one of the other things we talked about last time, which I want to elaborate on a little bit, is uh, the aspect of elitism right the yeah. cycle of elitism mm-hmm. and how we supposedly sh- we should be coming out of this cycle where and it almost sounds like a myth like a mythological thing to us now mm-hmm. which which is good where you know there was these white young white men who would be sent off to these prep schools on the east coast or whatever and then those prep schools would make up uh, a body of students at the ivy league schools and then they would grow up and do the same thing to their kids and so on and that's just kind of how it worked it created this it perpetuated this cycle of elitist people who all looked the same right Mm -hmm. Uh, interestingly one of the things that came up in this new incident uh, came out is uh, outlined in the article in the New York Times from almost a couple of weeks ago it outlines four ways that uh, Harvard uses to select its uh, uh, student body 
four ways applicants get an edge. Um, so it's interesting. Now, once you hear the first one here, mm-hmm. you'll be tempted to pass judgment on Harvard as just this completely like elitist institution, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll keep going after the first one, and we see, okay, well, there's a little bit of balance here. The first criterion is called this. It's an acronym, ALDC. ALDC stands for Athletes, Legacies, um, der- Deans or Directors List, mm-hmm. and Children. So, um, yeah, so that that's a big thing, right? Athletes are recruited at a higher rate. Legacies, meaning people who is one, either one or both of their parents, mm-hmm. uh, children of Harvard, Harvard graduates, applicants on the deans or directors list, interest list, which often include children of very wealthy donors and prominent people, mostly white. I'm quoting the article here. Mm-hmm. And C, children of faculty and staff. These are, and it says ALDCs, make up only about 5% of applicants, but 30% of admitted students. Mm. So we talked about that. And their and their acceptance rate, is it about what it says, uh, 45%? Right. Compared with 4.5% with the rest of the pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the first one. No. Yeah, yeah. I would, re- I would, I would really, <laughs> I'd be ready to drop the hammer right now. But go yeah. ahead. <laughs> the next one. So, so before we move on, doesn't that totally seem like it perpetuates this, this whole cycle of the, the um, we're talking this elitist machinery, right? That we were talking about. Well, training. absolutely. I think, and once again, I, I won't go too deeply into this, but. This really goes back to the history of the Ivy League institutions, mm-hmm. Harvard being chief among them. Um, this is, I'm not, I'm not surprised by it because of the way that they were established. And it, that legacy was very much a part of uh, the, the tradition. Now, I guess with, with any institution, but it was really ingrained and it's some really interesting stuff. Uh, I think it's uh, Craig Wilder um, who wrote a book on it. Uh, it's called the uh, Ebony and Ivy. It's the um, basically a history of I- the uh, Ivy League institutions mm-hmm. and slavery, wow. and it's uh, it's it's a phenomenal work. But I digress. We'll have to go into depth on that. <laughs> <laughs> At some other point, but but please do keep going. Okay, so we heard the first uh, criteria. The second one yeah. is called students from, quote, sparse country. Hmm. Sounds interesting. So um, sparse country is twenty about 20 largely rural states where relatively few people apply to Harvard from. So they look at the PSAT scores. And they uh, and then this talks about a little bit different um, demographic groups from within these places that they look at and so on. So that's the second one. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, the third is effervescent or reflective applicants, applicants who basically uh, quote unusually appealing personal qualities, which could include quote effervescence, charity, maturity, and strength of character. 
effervescence. Hmm, bubbly people? I guess. Some type of quality that makes them stand out from the rest of the applicants. That I guess it's hard, it's subjective, obviously. Um, But also includes maybe doing charity work and stuff like that, getting involved in the community. So, okay, that's good. And the fourth one is those with a compelling life story who have overcome obstacles. Okay. So, uh, also taken from court documents. Um, Yeah, people who, for example, oh, and they give the example of the admissions dean of Harvard who is the admissions dean right now Mm -hmm. Um, he is a white man um, but his parents when he was younger his parents run a gas station and he was applying to Harvard he was like a long shot to get in but since he had come some ty- overcome some type of obstacle or whatever, mm-hmm. and it wasn't the typical applicant, he was he he was able to get in. Okay. Yeah, that type of criterion. So three out of four, I mean, they kind of make sense, right? Mm-hmm. And the one, the the first one, the ALDCs, what they use to uh, rationalize it is they say that it encourages alumni to give their time, expertise, and money to the university. Which makes sense, but I mean, still, it is Go what with it the is. Money. Go it with is the money. what it is, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is definitely perpetuating this cycle of uh, elitism that we talked about. But the other three make sense, right? Not too bad. So Harvard, will we give them a pass? I don't know. What do you think? Um, in a pragmatic from a from a pragmatic uh, standpoint, I understand number one for the very reasons you just mentioned, right? If we're an institution, um, we want to make sure that we continue to have the type of financial support that allows us to to provide, uh, you know, such a sought-after education. Yeah. Right? So I understand that. Uh, Because education is not not free, right? I understand it. But let me go back to students from sparse country. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me if this sounds somewhat like an affirmative action um, based policy. Says that the PSAT um, says in 2013, white applicants with PSAT scores of 1310 were invited to apply from sparse country compared with 1350 for white and Asian American women and 1380 for white and Asian American men outside of sparse country. Um, Black, Hispanic, Native American, or other minority students needed an 1100 or better uh, to be invited to apply regardless of location. Do you feel like this is an admission of the uh, kind of a, a lack of quality education, a uh, lack of, a, uh, of rigor that's going to allow rural, rural whites to be able to achieve at the same level as now I don't know where these other folks are coming from uh, and of course that the score that they have to hit 1310 is what almost 200 above what uh, they're saying yeah, black is it, is Hispanic it, Native yeah, American you're asking basically is it an admission of the uh, inherent problems and, and inequalities in education that Absolutely. we were talking about before yeah. um, I, I don't know it seems to be I would say that um, this list that we're talking about now mm-hmm. is kind of separate from affirmative action, but at the same time, affirmative action 
based on uh, racial demographics does not go away. So these are two kind of different different lenses which overlap, you yeah. know. So they're talking about the sparse country thing or whatever. That doesn't mean that racial uh, demographics is like out of the picture now. It's kind of overlaps and it's all tried. They try to factor everything in together, and that's what makes it so complex. I would say that. Mm. All right. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, these are primarily. Uh, that's something that is set aside specifically for white students who happen to come from a specific school system that they have. I guess they have. They've looked at the numbers and. Um, uh, ascertain that we need to grade on the curve. We need to drop it down, mm-hmm. drop it down a bit. Um, I think they're they're making us exceptions across the board. Uh, yeah, it, it it appears they're making exceptions across the board. But of course, with the the chief objective being their own uh, being able to sustain an institution. Yeah. Um. I guess. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. <laughs> I would love to con- uh, continue this conversation another time, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. Um, the takeaways for now, I guess, would have to be this is an ongoing thing. We're not going to reach a conclusion now. Yeah. Um, also, the thing about the uh, person who formed this litigation and their agendas and its effect on affirmative action in the long term, and just the fact that Harvard and other institutions like it are so sought after and then there's so many different people applying that it's very, like I said, there's a lot of overlap between the different criterion that they use and it's very, it's an extremely complex process um, and a little bit of elitism still still going on. I agree. Last thing I want to say to this is this also, I think, uh, it shows that there's a need for a conversation around why these institutions have maintained the position that they have uh, to the, I guess, to the subjugation or to the, um, while other institutions, I guess it's best to say like this, why can't other institutions achieve the same level of excellence and I think a lot of that is around funding. And until the way we fund education changes, we will maintain the, the status quo. So, all right, good stuff. Um, we thank you all for joining us. We want to let you know, uh, join us December 1st, Elmhurst College for the Sierra Conference. We've got Um Zakia, uh, Wesley LeBron, uh, myself, Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid, and Juan Cole, Professor Juan Cole, who will be doing a book signing after his presentation. So we uh, want you to join us out there. It's a free, it's a free event, uh, 1 to 4.30, 1 to 4.30. And we'll talk about it more as time goes on. Okay, folks, we want to thank our engineers. No, we want to thank our sponsor, Zakat Foundation. Thank you very much. Now we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. Uh, I'm your host, Tariq el uh, joined by co-host Ibrahim Beg. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.